Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, just simply raise your hand. Uh, Chris at the back will get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, the ones that Chris is giving out, you can take home and have it as yours. If you do have your own Bible, we would encourage you to bring it each Sunday to read along with us. But you will need a Bible, and we'll be turning to Genesis 6. First book of the Bible, first book of the Old Testament, and we've reached Genesis chapter 6. Now, last week we started chapter 6, learning that although the people multiplied and filled the earth, so did sin of mankind. We delved into the world of the Nephilim and the judgment of God, seeing that God would no longer hold his judgment back. Instead, what God was going to blot out man from the face of the earth. The striking element to each one of us last week is the question as to whether we should test the patience of God or not. Should we continue to live in the way we wish, or should we continue to live in the way that God desires us to live? He has set before us a holy way of living. Do we honor those commands in our lives? Do we truly seek to make Jesus number one in our lives? Now, maybe you have been baptized as a Christian and been a Christian for a long time. Maybe today, as you're witnessing other people being baptized, you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm not really living the life anymore. Well, I would be as bold and blunt as saying this. Don't make any more excuses. Make today the day where you say, here is God's holy standard. I will live by it. I will serve by it. And I will put him number one in our lives. That's where we were last week. Now, as we go deeper into chapter six, we're going to focus on two aspects. The immensity of the judgment and the glorious grace of God. The two aspects, the immensity of the judgment and the glorious grace of God. As we dig deep into these aspects, we'll begin to see a behavior in Noah, one that is unusual in the time that he lives in, but one that we are all called to. That behavior is obedience. It is faith in God that leads to obedience. A.W. Tozer said this, the Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. The two are our opposite sides of the same coin. Faith and obedience go hand in hand, and what we're going to see today as we face both the judgment of God and the grace of God, it is by faith that we're obedient to the words of God. So we turn now to our passage. Uh, normally we would read it out, but for time's sake, I'm just going to read verse by verse as we go through uh, the chapter together. Verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, at the beginning of chapter 5, we started with the generations of Adam. Now we're in chapter 6, we have the generations of Noah. And when you see this phrasing right at the beginning here, these are the generations, a new chapter in God's big picture is about to begin. And this new chapter begins with Noah and his sons. That is because the word of God, yes, we have individual verses, individual chapters, individual books, but it all makes up one big picture. And when we see these are the generations, we know that a new chapter is about to begin. We're told that Noah was a righteous man, meaning that he stood in proper standing. He was blameless, coming from the Hebrew word tam. It doesn't mean he was sinless. Notice this, he's not sinless, 
Rather, he is blameless. He has a wholeness to his character. His practical everyday life matched his spiritual life and his belief in God. You see, righteousness cannot occur unless you live in and through God. And that is exactly what Noah was known for. For he walked with God just as we saw Enoch did in chapter 5. Now, there is some uncertainty over the meaning of Noah's son's names, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I think probably the most popular is that some would indicate their names, indicate some form of differing race known to mankind. A couple of theologians, a couple of uh, writers would uh, regard their names as meaning dark, darker, and lighter, and therefore hinting towards differing colors of skin. However, I should say that these are thoughts and and really kind of extensions of speculations from the meanings of the names. But what is clear is that it is unclear. The names of Noah's sons are not actually the important thing here. Rather, their father's life and the continuation of the descendants through to Jesus is the key focus here. So again, last week I mentioned it's good to delve into these sorts of things and try and get some understanding. At the same time, it's good not to get lost in the controversy and debate and completely forget what is going on here. A new chapter is beginning with Noah, and that chapter would continue with his sons. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, when you see a repetition in a verse or a grouping of verses, the reader really should pay attention to the emphasis. And we'll come on to the repetitions in just a minute, but first see these words in verse 12. And God saw the earth. I wonder, can you remember the last time that we saw such a phrasing? Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Several centuries have passed, yet God is still looking upon his creation. He once saw it as very good, but now he sees it in a different light. Something has changed, and I tell you, it is not God that has changed. He is still there. He's still looking upon his creation. Now, notice the word corrupt or corruption is repeated three times in these two verses. The earth was a dishonest place. Worse still, it was now filled with violence. The word corrupt here comes from the Hebrew word shakath, which literally translates as destroy. The whole earth and the whole way of life had been destroyed. It was now a violent, self-centered, corrupt environment. And it seems since the time of Cain murdering his brother Abel, this dishonesty and anger only increased, leading to violence as a common occurrence. Now notice the second element that is repeated, the earth. It was the earth that was filled with corruption. It was the earth that was filled with violence. It was the earth that God saw as corrupt, and it was the earth that corrupted flesh dwelt upon. Now many have asked since last week, uh, why destroy the earth and not just simply mankind? Well, here's your answer. God saw the entire earth, all within it and all that was on it, decayed to such a corrupt position that nothing was good any longer. It might be hard for us to get your head around creation being corrupt, 
Uh, but just imagine you're painting a watercolor. You would be surprised I'm not very arty myself, but just imagine you're painting a watercolor and you go to use that lovely bright yellow paint to show the sun going across the horizon. But someone's got there before you and dipped their black paint into the yellow. And as you take your brush stroke across the canvas, it is no longer bright yellow, but this kind of weird color of gray, greeny, yellowy orange. The horizon isn't beautiful anymore. It just looks like a big smudge. God's creation, his perfect canvas, had a big smudge of sin, decay, and death. There was no recovery. It was time to throw the canvas out and to start again. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, we're not sure what method God was speaking to Noah in here. It could have been a dream. It could have been a vision or some form of direct revelation. That could be possible here. But the method is less important than the message itself. And I want you to notice the language of the message. I have determined. God has decreed what he will do. God is speaking as a judge over the people and ruler over all creation. I have determined my judgment. And the judgment was astonishing. Everything would end. God was reiterating the message in verse 7. Just flick your eyes back to verse 7 of chapter 6. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Here God makes it clear that both flesh, meaning mankind, and the earth itself will be destroyed. I want you to notice the last words of verse 13. I will destroy them with the earth. Again, we find ourselves asking why. The answer is in the, in the text, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Everything mankind touched is tarnished, and therefore everything that mankind had touched must be destroyed. Yet in some senses, we can say that God was going to, yes, destroy, but something that had already been destroyed by mankind. They'd already tarnished it. They had destroyed the perfect world. God was just taking the final blow to it. Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second and third decks. Now, before God tells Noah how he's going to destroy the world, God first gives him instructions. Yes, Noah will soon find out about the flood, but it's important to get this, that God expects obedience even when you don't know the end game. Can you just imagine if right now God said, right, go and build an ark and it's meant to be this size, this way. Why? Why are we to do that? We're in Lincoln. It doesn't really rain that much here. If we're in Scotland, well, that would be a different picture. God gives us the instructions before he gives us the end game because he expects obedience without us even knowing what is to come. And Noah was to build an ark. 
Let's look at just some of these details. Uh, the first detail I absolutely love. The word ark comes from the Hebrew word taba. There's a couple of arks in the Bible, ark of the covenant. This is the ark. Uh, taba literally translates as a floating box. So let's go and build a massive floating box. That is what God is declaring here. It was to be made from gopher wood, a hard, long-lasting and stable wood. This was for something of an extended period of time. The wood had to last the size, after converting to modern measurements, was to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and about 45 feet high. Essentially, it was a long and tall barge. Significantly to a barge is there would be something below water. Uh, we used to live in Campbelltown, and there was a great forestry commission uh, on sites where we lived. And every so often, these great massive barges would come along, they would dump all of the logs on them, and they would take them away. And what was incredible is you only ever saw the top layer of the wood, because everything else was below sea level. And it would stop the boat from rocking, because the weight was right at the bottom. So if you can imagine this great barge, and what does God say? He says, make three decks. Notice the word, a lower deck. This is not your Sunday school picture of a boat going really far up into the sky. This is a barge going down into the water with a top to it. There would only be one door, meaning only one entrance and one exit. Just as a side note there, interesting that there was only one way to get into the ark and only one way to get into heaven. Both were blessings. All told, this floating box was to weigh about 14,000 tons. This was no ordinary boat, and this was no ordinary task. Oswald Chambers wrote, All of God's people are ordinary people who have been made extraordinary by the purpose he has given them. Noah was not an extraordinary carpenter. It's certainly not written in God's word that he was. Rather, the purpose was extraordinary. And because the purpose was extraordinary, God would make an ordinary man extraordinary. I think this is a wonderful promise to us. Does anyone feel ordinary today? Do you know that we have an extraordinary task in the Great Commission? not achievable by ordinary people on their own, is achievable when God makes us extraordinary for an extraordinary task. This ordinary man in Noah became obedient as a craftsman and built an outrageous floating box. Verse 17, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Here is why the ark would be needed. God was indeed going to destroy the earth and all of flesh, and he would do so by a worldwide flood. Everything that was living would die. Henry Morris describes it as a catastrophic flood. It is destruction on the largest scale possible. Now, great debate. Uh, is it just the world that they knew at the time? Or was the whole world flooded? Well, look at the verse again. Verse 17, right at the end. Everything that is on the earth that they were aware of, doesn't say that, does it? Everything that is on the earth shall die. It is a whole world catastrophic flood, destruction at the largest scale possible. It is the judgment of God poured out onto creation, and it couldn't be clearer what the outcome would be. 
And just take a note of that blunt, straight-to-the-point language that God gives. Everything that is on earth will die. I was struck by the connection of these words and the bluntness and boldness of them, the echo from Genesis 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God doesn't mince his words, does he? Do this and you'll be blessed. Do this and you will die. Sin came through Adam. It led to wickedness. It led to violence. It led to destruction. Judgment has been determined and pronounced on the land. All would die. Verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, crucial to our understanding of this whole passage is verse 18. For God was not going to destroy all things without leaving hope for mankind. And wonderfully, we learn through verse 18 that when God pronounces judgment, he also pronounces means of salvation. He establishes a covenant with Noah. This word covenant coming from the word bereth in the Hebrew. God was setting out a promise that would not be broken. God was going to save Noah, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives. Now, clearly, the plan of God was not 100% destruction, uh, maybe 99% destruction. There would be a future. There would be a people of God. There would be a creation of God. And it was all promised in the protection and generation of Noah. Remember, new chapter with Noah extended out with his sons. Crucially, God was holding to his promise in chapter 3. For mankind needed an eternal salvation. If all was destroyed, then man would never be able to be eternally cleansed and would be destined to be distant from God for eternity. Now was not the time for 100% destruction because God's eternal salvation plan was yet to be fully realized. Do you get the mercy here? Even in judgment and destruction, God is working out his plan to save his people for eternity. Yet this covenant would not only be covering Noah and his family, but also the living creatures. I think this is incredible. Verse 19, continuing the covenant of Noah, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kinds. Two of every sort shall come into your, keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. God ultimately cares for the welfare of his creation. He would start again. And to do so, he must protect living things. Again, the wonderful mercy of God on display. Judgment, yet with hope. Two of every animal, a breeding pair of male and female, were to be in the ark. And further to this, we'll learn this next week, that there were to be even more animals that were to be brought into the ark. Now, commentators vary widely as to how many animals and people and everything was on the ark. Some say 15,000, some say 50,000, some say 75,000 animals all told. But with so many animals and Noah's family on the ark, food was going to be needed. So all types of food were to be stored in the ark. 
I wonder if this is an early hint to us that Noah and his family and the animals would be on the ark for quite some time. Why would you need a lot of food for a day's journey? Do you see how God is showing mercy and judgment here? You all deserve destruction, but I will bring salvation through the descendants of Noah. How do we round up the chapter? Verse 22. Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. Noah did all that God commanded him to do. He built the ark. He made it out of gopher wood. He made it to the specifications that God had set. He ensured the family, the animals, and all the food was prepared. He did it all because God asked him to. And notice the repetition again. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded. There is no doubt in our mind how Noah responded to God. Noah did exactly what God had asked. Interestingly, very different to how Adam had responded to God's command. I'm struck at the monumental task this ordinary man had to go through, yet how simply he obeyed. There is no overcomplication. There is no debate. There is no discussion. God said it, so Noah did it. That was it. It is this simple obedience through faith that Noah would forever be known for. He's noted in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11 and verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Notice that. He doesn't even know what's going to come. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Yet unseen. Make a ridiculous floating box, Noah. Well, God, you said it. I'll do it. I don't even know how to make a boat. I've never made one before. There's never been a big flood before. I don't know if you even have the tools that have been created to make it, but I'll do it. The end game was not the focus. Obedience to God was. As we come to in a few minutes, some application. I don't think the application is going to surprise you from this passage. Yet it's important to state the lessons clearly so that we would grow in our faith in Christ Jesus and that we would be complete in him. The letters of 1 and 2 Peter tell us this, that we are to continually grow in the things that God teaches in his word so that we would be more complete in him. And so I have two clear applications I think come from this passage. Here's the first one, judgment and salvation. On this, our baptism Sunday, do you see the parallel to the judgment and salvation in Genesis 6 and the judgment that we face because of our sin and the salvation that's available to us? A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned a quote from Billy Graham. Uh, here was the quote. It was a fairly morbid quote. I'll, I'll give you that. You're born, you suffer, you die. And that's where we left it a couple of weeks ago. Fairly morbid but I purposely left out the second half of the quote for today. Here is the whole quote. You're born, you suffer, you die. Fortunately, there's a loophole. 
Isn't that wonderful? God wasn't going to leave us in morbid reality of just suffering and death. Like Noah's time, he has given us a loophole, and that loophole is Christ Jesus. And folks, this is going to go quick. And the reason I'm going to go quick is because I want to see and show you and let you feel this and let you know this, that this is the beauty of our God's mercy in judgment. That we are God's creation, Genesis 1.1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, yet all mankind fell into sin. That the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Meaning, we're now all tarnished as sinners, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Meaning, because of that, we all face punishment, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. God has pronounced his judgment. But where is the loop? God has a solution. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not die, but have everlasting life. And this solution only has one door, and that door is Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it all comes through faith. Acts 2, 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Folks, this is the message of God's word. This is the message of Genesis 6, of Genesis 1, of any book, any verse, any chapter in God's word. This is the message. That in God's big picture plan, he had pronounced judgment as sin had entered the world, but God has a solution for us. And do you not see that each one of us is a Noah, we have an opportunity to go through the loophole of Christ Jesus. God has placed his favor on us by giving us that solution. And the prize can be accessed then through no other than Jesus Christ. Just as those who were baptized today declared, it is faith in Jesus that has saved them from sin. Folks, when you get the immensity of the judgment, you will understand the beauty of of God's glorious grace. If the judgment was just a slap across the wrist, try again, it wouldn't need the Son of God to die on a cross in a cruel death. The judgment is immense. It's entire destruction, not just now, but for eternity. And therefore, we need God's glorious grace in Christ Jesus to save us. I really do pray that you would know both the severity of the judgment, and the beauty of God's glorious grace. Here's my second application. Don't overcomplicate it. Simply obey. Henry Blackaby, a Canadian pastor and theologian, wrote this. If you know that God loves you, you should never question a directive from him. It will always be right and best when he gives you a directive, you're not to just observe it, discuss it, or debate it. You are to obey it. Can you imagine if Noah gathered his family around and discussed and debated the command of God rather than getting on with it? I think the outcome of this sermon would be very different to what it is. What do you mean, Dad? Build a floating box. You've gone nuts. Don't even know what hammer is. What nails? What are they? Never built anything. 
What do you mean there's going to be a worldwide flood? Never seen rain to that level. Potentially, depending on your theological position, don't know if we've ever seen rain yet. Noah's wife. No, not another crazy project. This one's gone too far. The son's wives. I'm not sure if I want to be part of this family. <laughs> Just imagine the debate and the discussion and the overcomplication. Do you, do you really think he meant like 75 feet? Is that really what he meant? Maybe we've got the numbers wrong. Can't find any gopher wood. He must have meant pine. There's a little joke there for Ikea, friends. <laughs> His simple obedience, though, is our example today. God loves each of us, his church and his people. How do we know this? Because while we were still sinners, while we were dead and gone and nothing to give, Christ gave his life for us. He has given us directives in his words and we are not to overcomplicate it. We're to go on with being obedient. Now, there are some in our church uh, that would far rather protect traditions and positions and opinions than obey God's word. I would say this, we're no different than any other church. This is the common thing. Why? Because all the way back in Genesis 3 in the fall, did Adam and Eve own up and humbly repent? No. They went to the blame game. They wanted to hold on to something for themselves. And that hasn't changed. There's many that want to protect traditions and positions and opinions. But let me say this to us today. If you find yourself in endless discussion, endless debate, endless arguments, dare I say that you potentially are facing the judgment of God. For obedience was the marker in this passage. Not discussion, not debate, not argument, not wondering what would come, not knowing the end game, not planning out tradition, not protecting your life. It was obedience to the word of God. And let me go a little bit further with this. I think if we put this in layman's terms, I think what our passage is saying is this. We need to stop the endless babble and get on with being obedient to God's command. We're to stop the endless babble and get on with being obedient to God's commands. I cannot tell you how many pointless meetings and emails and phone calls that the leaders have to go through each week. Of course, we seek to serve the church. Of course, we seek to care and shepherd the church. Of course, we're right by your side and we will be the first to help where we can. But often, the stuff that we deal with makes it so clear that whether it is social media, the way we live, or the actions towards others, we are spending more time babbling through life rather than hearing the directive from God and being obedient to it. Now I'm probably going to get my knuckles wrapped for that. But let's be honest, that's the truth. That is the truth of often our situation in Christian life that we see something in God's word, we don't particularly like it, so we debate, we discuss, we avoid the directive from God's word. There are some issues that have existed in this church for years. Like any other church, I want to be clear here, I'm not just picking on us, this is the global issue within the church. 
There is problems that roll on one year to the next because of a lack of forgiveness, because of a degrading of God's word, because commands not followed, because of pride, because of self-centeredness. Folks, the issues and the problems would cease in an instant if we stopped babbling and focused on obedience to God's word. How do we know that? Because in complete judgment and destruction, who was saved? The one who was obedient. And so I want to conclude with, I think, a fairly profound commandment of God. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Take that in reverse. If you do not keep God's commandments, you do not love him. It's time to stop the babbling and it's time to be obedient. Let's pray. Father, I do indeed thank you for today for witnessing wonderful obedience in baptism. Father, I thank you that I is backed up in Scripture from Noah's wonderful obedience to build this floating box that was just outrageous in the time, and he did so because you had commanded him to. Father, each one of us has your word in front of us. I wonder how many of us are debating, discussing, avoiding your directives. I wonder if we would choose our traditions and opinions and thought processes ahead of your commands. I wonder, Father, if we're already boiling in a rage inside because we dare, dare mention that if we love God, we must keep his commands. Father, I pray that we would be an obedient people. We have seen through scripture how disobedience is just dreadful. We saw it in Adam, original sin. We see it in Cain. We saw it in the people of Israel throughout the whole of the Old Testament, their continual grumbling and disobedience. We saw it in the disciples. We saw it in the New Testament churches. Father, we saw it in the Pharisees. We see it in the church today where we don't quite grasp the immensity of the judgment and therefore we don't grasp the glorious grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray very simply today that we would quit the babbling and we would be obedient to your directives. That's not easy, Father. Us ordinary people can't do that just on our own, especially when your directives come thick and fast and it means great change. Father, we pray that you would make these ordinary people extraordinary through your son, Jesus Christ so that his name would be glorified because he would dare take ordinary sinners like us and show the glory of his grace through us. And so, Father, we pray this in your name. Amen.